Good morning. So glad to be with you today. Welcome. If you're our guest this morning, we're very glad that you're here. And I want to just thank you for this privilege. I'm wondering if uh, Sandy has a message for me of why he's called me here to speak on humility. Um, uh, When you throw a a rock into a pack of dogs and the one that starts yelping, you know, there's the guilty one. Um, I want to invite you to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, there's a little sheet there on your table, a little outline if you want to uh, follow along. And we're going to look at uh, six ways that uh, the gospel takes those of us who are naturally puffed up and proud and full of ourselves and transforms us into humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at the Word, and before we read, let me pray for us. Father, already this morning there are multiple voices clamoring for our attention. Give us your grace now to hear your still, small voice speaking through your Word. And give us grace that we might respond as we ought, with faith, with understanding, and with obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians 4. This is how how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, literally any human day. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God." I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, arrogant, in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle. Literally a theater to the world, to angels, and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. When we be We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. Now Paul changes his tune. He becomes a father now. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to um, admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and every church. Here's the problem. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. 
One of my favorite sermons that I go back to and listen to on occasion is from a man named John Stott. He was the rector of All Souls Church in, in London, England for, you know, 60 plus years. And he has a sermon uh, on, on that website, All Souls Church, Langham Place. It's called A Humble Mind. And it's just the first 11 verses of that great passage on humility from Philippians chapter 2. And he says this, at every stage of your development as a Christian, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. You see, this morning, just like every other morning, you and I are engaged in a spiritual battle. We probably didn't put our our, our football helmet on as we uh, get ready to go to work today, to, thinking about this spiritual battle. But there, there are three primary different forms of spiritual degeneration that, that affects all of us. All of us struggle to believe and hold on to the promises of God. That He loves us with an everlasting love. That He won't give us more than we can bear. We, go, we struggle to hold on to those promises. All of us. We live in a broken and fallen world where we sin and we hurt the very people that we love the most. And people sin against us. And it's difficult and at times we struggle with a lack of forgiveness in our relationships. But the one that we want to look at today, which we can so easily see in somebody else and so miss it in ourselves, is that of unhumbled pride. Pride is nothing but contending for supremacy with God. You show me a family, show me an extended family, show me a church where there's squabbling, where there's dissensions, where there's divisions like you guys have been talking about here in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. I'll show you a church, a family where pride is rife. Well, what is happening here, pride is destroying the witness and the unity of this church because of people that elevate certain gifts and certain leaders over others. What is pride? And I know of no other place to, uh, better place to go to than the old book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And he says this uh, in the chapter called Spiritual Cancer. And isn't that a very fitting definition for pride? Because pride eats up the very possibility of love and contentment in our life and relationships. He says, pride is the essential vice. It's the utmost evil. Pride is, get this, the chief cause of all misery in every nation and every family ever since the world began. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that. Listen to what he says. They're mere flea bites in comparison to pride, because it was through the pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you and I are proud, we cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on other people and other things. And as long as you're looking down, there's no way that you can look up. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love. Well, when pride is left unchecked in our hearts, in our relationships, what does it do? There's an incredibly high price tag. And I just sort of listed this. When there's quarreling and there's dissensions, and if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know, sometimes us Christians, we can do the darndest things and, uh, and hurt people. But when quarreling and dissension goes on in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the father's dishonored, the son's disgrace, God's people are demoralized and discredited, the world is turned off to us and is confirmed in their unbelief, Uh, the fractured fellowship, it robs us of our joy and our effectiveness in serving Christ, it robs God of his glory, it robs the world of a credible testimony of the gospel, And all of this is an incredibly high price tag to pay for an ego trip. What is the cure for this? What is the cure? And friends, I would propose 
is that it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show you that today from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The cure for dissensions, the cure for divisions in our, in our families, in our workplaces, in the church, uh, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show you, just walking through this passage, six ways that the gospel takes those of us who are naturally proud and full of ourselves and transforms us and makes us into humble servants. And the first thing I want you to see here is the, uh, the gospel transforms proud people into humble servants by changing our view of ourselves. Look with me in verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. As servants of Christ. This is, this, we're given a new identity. And one of the things I want you to see that Paul is not just talking about preachers. You certainly need to uh, pray for your pastors and leaders. We have no authority in and of ourselves. The only authority we have is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are servants. But I want you to see something down in verse 6. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. So it's for all of us, all who claim allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are servants. We have a new identity. We have a radically new identity. And here, this is a very different word. Any of you guys know some of the original words for servant in the New Testament? If you've uh, Operation Mobilization, if you've ever seen their big ship goes around port to port, the doulos, uh, the slave, that's probably the one that we, we refer to the most. Uh, you, you, you got some deacons at your church? They're, they're, they're servants, they're table waiters. That's what that means. Uh, here is a word that's a little bit different. It's huperetes. It's the word for under rower. It's the, uh, the galley ships. Uh, I've got a little picture uh, uh, just to sort of help you think about it a little bit. Remember Ben-Hur? Uh, underneath the galley ship. This is, this is sort of the picture of, of our a new identity in Christ. We are the under rowers. Our eyes are on the captain. We, we go where the captain says go. We do what the captain says do. And uh, the beautiful thing is that we belong to another. Our identity is caught up in, in the name and the will and the kingdom of another. But unlike these galley slaves that are held by chains, we've got a totally different chain. If you go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what is it that compels us? It's not a sense of duty. It's the love of Christ. We've got the one, the, the one true captain who humbled himself and became the ultimate servant and emptied himself to, and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And his love is what uh, constrains us. So this, first of all, this humbles us to see that we are, we are just mere servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we belong to Him. Well, if you're uh, an average, normal, breathing male today, where do we get our sense of identity? Most of us, we get our sense of identity from what we do and how, how well we do at what we do. Why this is important to think just briefly about where do I get my sense of identity is... What happens, and I just want to tell you a story. I got this from a friend of mine, James Houston, who uh, used to be a student at the feet of C.S. Lewis in Oxford, and he started uh, a um, graduate school in Vancouver. Uh, and he told me about a guy named uh, Dr. Thomas Grabois. Dr. Thomas Grabois was a senior cardiologist at Harvard Medical School. And he wrote a book. It's called Life in the Balance. And it describes his uh, despair, just this, this avalanche of despair that came upon him. He was a Jewish man. He was stripped of his professional identity as a cardiologist because of Parkinson's disease. And, uh, and sort of the challenge here for all of us is that when that moment comes and we're stripped of our professional identity... 
And we were no longer defined by what we do. Boy, it becomes real important to know who you are and to whom you belong and define your, get your sense of identity from whose you are. You belong to the Lord. You're His. This is, a, this is a problem with most of us guys that do pastoral ministry. We get our sense of identity from what we do. And uh, oftentimes because of that, we're in just a minute we'll talk about criticism. Uh, we're putting our fingers up and we try to please people. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a ball and chain and it undoes many, many pastors. But where do you get your sense of identity today? Is it from what you do? Is it, is it how well your kids do uh, in their athletic accomplishments, uh, in their academic accomplishments, how, how we're making a name for ourselves? Or is it your relationship with Jesus Christ? You're his servant. This is your humble position. You, you come up against someone who's immeasurably superior to yourself, the Lord. He is the captain of the ship. Well, go down, let's go to the next part here uh, because it, it basically we, we've got a new identity. In light of that new identity, we've got a new responsibility. And, and we look at this from the word steward. Regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. We have a new responsibility. Uh, we're, we're stewards, and this is a, this is a word, uh, oikonomos, the law of the house. This, is a, this would be a servant who has been entrusted with an incredible responsibility to care for the household of the master. And, uh, and this is what we are. We've got a household here. We've got the household of God, the people of God to care for. And we're stewards, and we've got something particularly that we have to care for and guard and dispense. It's called the mysteries. The mysteries, and, and that would be the gospel. We're managers of God's household who steward his gospel. So this first metaphor of the servant is kind of a, a humble uh, position. It, it, it humbles us. This one, at this point, ought to embolden us. It ought to, it ought to the Lord has seen fit to entrust you. With the mysteries. And this whole idea here, one thing I want to hit on is how is it that you were enabled to hear his voice? How is it that you were able to enter into the household of God while there's time and while there's room? Why were you, why were your ears opened? Why were your eyes, uh, uh, why did the scales fall off your eyes? Why did the Lord cause your darkened heart to beat? For him. This mystery, the, the gospel, that the, the, the Lord of glory was crucified in weakness for your, in your place, in my place. Why, why did that resonate with you? He opened my eyes. Like John Newton said, I once was blind, but now I see. It, it, it emboldens you. And this is the thing that we need as men. Because we live, as uh, uh, one of uh, my former professors uh, in seminary used to say, uh, Mr. Tony Evans, uh, we, we live in a day and age of what he calls the sissification of the American male. And we need men in our families. We need men in the workplace. We need men in, in our church who are characterized by bold humility. The only thing that can give this to you is the gospel. You see here, now we have an entrusted position. We're stewards of the mysteries. The Lord has entrusted this to us. And this is the beautiful thing of the gospel. Martin Luther, he called it, and, and this is in Latin, Samuel Hustus et peccator. At the same time, I'm a sinner and I'm justified. I am forgiven. I'm declared righteous in God's sight. Over here, it humbles me. It's like we're playing in the pool and the Lord's just holding my head underwater. Give me some air. And then he lifts me up to the height of heights. Same thing here. You're a servant, down. You're a steward, up. Bold humility. And the beautiful thing is that the Lord wants to use you 
that he entrusts his work to crooked sticks like us. And this morning, if you feel inadequate, if you feel that you are, the Lord can never use me. One of my favorite sermons is from Francis Schaeffer. It's called The Rod of God. And it it recounts all the things that God did with, with the rod of Moses. And you remember that story? And one of the things that he he makes a point of is that God uses people like you and me, insignificant people from insignificant places to accomplish his eternal kingdom work, to, to share the mystery. And friends, if you feel like that you're a crooked stick here today, I want to I want to welcome you to the club of crooked sticks. God only has crooked sticks. God uses the crooked sticks to strike the straight blows to extend his kingdom and to build his church. And one of the things I always remind myself when I come to occasions like this is that if God can speak through an ass, he can speak through me. And if, the better way to put it, a little more positive light, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And today, you know, in your family... Uh, I just want to encourage you. How are you stewarding this gospel? As I can see it, there there are three things that we need to do with this gospel. And some of them are a little bit harder. You know, honestly, it's a little bit easier for me to talk to a stranger about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ than to model that gospel sometimes with my family. We need to believe that gospel. We need, Lord, give me fresh faith today to believe that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the power of God to save me from the reigning seductive power of sin in my life today. I need to believe that. I need to put my anchor on that. I need to remind myself, and the way I crystallize it for myself is words from uh, uh, Jack Miller, uh, pastor up in Philadelphia years ago, uh, started World Harvest Mission. He said, cheer up. Dick, cheer up and smile. You're more sinful than you ever dared to imagine. You know, know, tell me something I don't know. But there's something else that us pastors here have to work like dogs to help people hold on to. The second part of this, you're more loved than you ever dared to dream. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that you could never live, and he died a sacrificial death for you. And when that starts to pulse in your heart, there's a lot of things that it does. But one of the things it does is it's this this next little point. It frees you. It frees you from being dictated to by the criticisms and the judgments of other people. And I want to talk to you about that. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ... uh, it, it, it transforms proud people into humble servants by changing how we deal with criticism. And let's look in verses 3 to 5, and this is, uh, needs to be nuanced a little bit. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. And he says um, uh, at the end of verse 4, it's the Lord who judges me. That the Lord is going to come... And he's going to bring to light everything that is hidden. Well, I think I've got a little picture up here. Is, um, is, is there a little picture up there on how we tend to deal with the... How do you tend to deal with criticism? Some of us, we're fighters. Uh, for much of my life, especially growing up, I always... Uh, preferred that approach, you know. You want a piece of me? You know, come on. <laughs> uh, and we, in marriage, uh, in, in work, a lot of us men, we have a need, an insatiable need to be right. And when someone crosses us, you know, okay, come on. <laughs> Some of us, we're fleers. <laughs> we, you know, we've, we've inherited... Uh, A lot of this, the Bible calls it the empty way of life inherited from our forefathers, those besetting ways of dealing with conflict. And 
And I guess one of the things I want to encourage you with is that all of us are, we live in a world where we're constantly being evaluated. We live in the church, and even here, Paul is basically saying, hey, I'm, I, it doesn't bother me, your evaluation. Whether you think, whether you think, I'm not as eloquent as Apollos. You know, I'm not as impressive in appearance. I'm a short little guy. I, you say I'm weak when I'm with you. I'm bold when, I, when I'm with you. Um, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't bother me. Because it, ultimately, it only matters at the end of the day what the Lord says about me and His, his judgment he says, um, I don't even judge myself. You know, I, I, um, once I was uh, uh, serving as a church planter in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I remember there was a, a professor's wife uh, there, and she just could not bring herself to come forward to take communion. She uh, just never thought she, could, she, would, she would always be drinking in an unworthy manner, just wondering if she, her motives were pure enough and... I don't know where she, where she got this, but I remember the day that she finally came forward. Man, I was like, I was doing this up front, just hallelujah. You know, this, this lady who's just been so caught up and mired in her own, you know, you've heard the phrase, I mean, hell is going to freeze over before you and I have perfectly pure motives in, in serving the Lord. And one of the things that the gospel does, it frees us from being so introspective and evaluating our motives, the motives of other people, of why they're doing this, why they're not doing that. And it frees us to have a singular eye for the audience of one. And this, this is something that ought to really encourage us. How does this notion of, the, of, of, of coming before the Lord on the last day to stand in our naked selves? There's no pretense There's no place to hide. We stand in the blazing light of His glory, and it will be to our everlasting comfort because we're we're robed in uh, in the beautiful robes of the perfect righteousness of Christ. He's taken all of our sin and shame. And it's interesting, I want to just highlight the word here because I want you to be encouraged by this. This ought to embolden you uh, and and excite you. Look look in the last sentence of verse uh, verse 5. He said, you know, after the Lord brings to light the things hidden in darkness and discloses the purposes of people's hearts, then each one, each one, each child of God will receive his commendation from God. This word commendation, praise, a clear and loud commendation. You ought to think right now, Matthew 25, come you, blessed of your Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. You have been my good and faithful servant. Enter in. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This, this is important stuff. Been, been reminding myself of this all day yesterday, burying a dear friend of mine, a matriarch in our church, in Tuscaloosa, 63 years old, young, young, incredible legacy, a woman who had an incredible servant's heart who heard from the lips of her Lord, well done. No matter what's going on in your life right now, do you have that singular eye? There's an audience of one that ultimately matters. And so whatever's going on today, I've got to please that one. He is the only captain. He is the master of the household. And my eye has to be fixed on pleasing him. Well, I know today whether I'm believing the gospel by how I respond when criticism comes my way. When it causes me to wilt in despair and wallow in self-pity... I'm not living out of a sense of gospel acceptance and grace. If, on the other hand, which I can be prone to do, I get defensive and say, okay, come on, and my, my voice gets elevated with my wife, I didn't do that. I'm not believing the gospel. And my friends, the beautiful thing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it frees you. It, 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 you, you, it frees you from being in bondage to the sin of man-pleasing. 
would encourage you with that. There's a lot more there. Let me go to the, to the, to the next uh, point. Now, let me, let me just make one little nuance here. Because one thing you're going to see, and especially next week, it gets real interesting here next week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the people of God are called to, to judge uh, a man who is living in an incest, incestuous relationship. So we have to be careful that we don't judge and impugn the motives of other believers. But we, we, we have to be willing to call sin, sin. And, and one of the things you see with the Apostle Paul is sometimes we have to wound in order to heal. And this is what he's doing here. Um, let's look now at our fourth point. Uh, the, the gospel transforms proud people into humble servants by changing how we view all of our resources, all of our stuff. We've got a new outlook on everything that we possess. Look in verses 6 and 7. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of us may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have? And here is the one question that fosters humility in this whole chapter. What do you have today that you did not receive? If, you, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Think about all your stuff, your intellectual capabilities. Some of you in this room, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, you've got the ability to generate wealth. Where does the ability to, cut, to generate wealth come from? Deuteronomy 8 says it comes from the Lord. Some of you have uh, particular gifts. You're leaders. Some of you are, are servants. You're behind-the-scenes kind of folk. Some of you know how to manage money well. Some of you have just wonderful families. Some of you are great uh, uh, Bible teachers. Everything that you have, everything that you are, every, every ability that you have, every opportunity that you have, every blessing that God has given to you has come from His hand. It's a gift of His grace. Therefore, it excludes all boasting. And it humbles us. And I love the note here from the ESV study Bible. It said, if Christians would repeatedly ask this of themselves, the question is, what do you have that you did not receive? If Christians would ask themselves repeatedly that question, it's going to produce two things in their lives. Deep humility and thanksgiving. Here's another phrase I love from... You know, if you've had teenagers, you know, uh, you, you probably at some point in your kitchen counter have had a, uh, a sign on your kitchen table, no whining, uh, you know, the, the whining with a, with a red dash through it. This is a great word from, uh, from John Stott. Pride is a noxious, poisonous weed that does not easily grow in the soil of a thankful heart. And I can't even say that without thinking about my grandma Rosie. My grandma Rosie, I lived with her in her house, my mom and dad and two younger sisters. Uh, she was 93 when she passed into glory. She prayed for me for many years. I was a hellion like a lot of preachers uh, are. The Lord has a sense of humor. Um, and... Uh, Say, son, sit down here and listen to this man, Billy Graham. You need to hear what he has to say. Graham, I don't need that um, right now. I'll get that when I get old like you. Uh, son, I'm praying for the hound of heaven to give you no rest until you bend the knee and you bow and you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Wow. You, when you got a grandmama praying for you like that, watch out. Watch out. Um, my grandmother, her signature, Grandma Rosie, how you doing? How you doing? I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Pride is a noxious weed, and it does not easily grow in the soil of a thankful heart. Would you pray today? Lord, I mean, amidst all the thing, way things that I need to change in my life, would you make me a thankful person? Thankful for all the resources. Thanks for all the abilities. Thanks for the opportunities. Thank you for all the blessings. I don't deserve any of it. It's a gift of your grace. Thank you. 
And that's the beautiful thing, and this is what C.S. Lewis says about humility. He said, if you meet a humble person, a truly humble person, he's not going to be some smarmy guy always talking down about himself. He's going to be a cheerful chap. And if you're jealous of anything at all, it's just how can this man be just so cheerful and just self-forgetful? And this is what humility is. It's the blessed gift of self-forgetfulness. Well, how should the realization that the source of all of your gifts and abilities and opportunities and blessings, uh, that it comes from the Lord, how should that change how we interface with other people and how we think about ourselves? First of all, if we have an Apollos here in our church... Uh, in, in your church, who's gifted, who's eloquent, who it just can wow an audience. You know, we praise the Lord. We're not threatened. We're not envious of anybody else's gifts. And we're willing to play our part, no matter how small. We're content in what God has given us to do. There are many more things for that. But here's, I want to read this little, you know the message, Eugene Peterson and let me just read the paraphrase of this little part of the passage. Isn't everything you have and everything you are? Everything you have and everything you are are sheer gifts from God. So what's all the point of comparing and competing? You already have all you need. You already have more access to God than you can handle without bringing either Apollos or me into it. You're sitting on top of the world, at least God's world. And we're right there sitting alongside with you. Is there any? Okay, got you. All right. Let's keep moving. Let's go to the second part of this, uh, of this passage. Anybody have any questions? Any questions? All right. Feel free. Jump in. Well, the fifth way that the gospel transforms proud people into humble servants is it changes Something very, very important in our lives. It changes how we view the cost. How we view the cost involved in following Jesus. Now this is where Paul sort of takes off the gloves. <laughs> he gets a bit fiery. And uh, he, he gets uh, a, a, actually a little sarcastic and uh, talking and engaging with the Corinthians. Who think they're high and mighty. They can get on without without the apostles, and basically what they, what they try to do is something that is very prevalent in our, in our culture, especially the evangelical subculture in America today. We want the crown before the cross. We want glory before the sufferings. And when sufferings and afflictions and pain and difficulty comes in our life, I don't know about you, but I remember my first question for many years. What am I doing wrong? Why is this happening to me? And uh, I guess one of the things I want you to see here is that the Apostle Paul is wanting them to see that it's very important that... This Christian life is not some pie in the sky, you know, you're, it's going to be smooth sailing, no struggle, no difficulty, no hardship. That some of God's most precious people have had to undergo the deepest and longest troughs. And we know, again, this is C.S. Lewis, that pain, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That God speaks to us in our consciences. He whispers to us in our pleasures. But he shouts at, to us in our pain. And this is what we see here with these folks in Corinth. Um, what was the pattern with Jesus? Do you remember on the road to Emmaus with Clopas and the other disciple? Jesus is walking with them. He's resurrected. They're depressed. We thought this was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And then Jesus, uh, that sermon, I think that all of us wish we could have walked along and heard. When he said, uh, didn't the Christ have to suffer all these things that are written about him in Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, and then enter into his glory. And you see this all the way through Romans, all the writings of the Apostle Paul, sufferings. And then 
glory. Some of you have had to undergo intense suffering. Some of you have buried children. Some of you have had uh, major life-threatening illnesses. You've, you've buried, just like we did yesterday, someone that you love and someone who's impacted your life greatly. And my friends, all of these struggles and sufferings are producing an eternal weight of glory. Paul says here, he said, you guys think you can get on high and mighty without us? You're, 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 you, you don't want anything to do with the cross? Here's what a good pastor does. He enforces uh, a, the cross upon the people of God. The cross is not only something by which we're saved, it's by how we live and it's how we love. And I guess I want to just sort of encourage you uh, that uh, the word that I emphasize in the reading in verse 9. He says, we have become a spectacle to the world. Literally, the word there is theatron, theater. Think Roman Colosseum. Think uh, uh, gladiator. We're, we're, like, uh, we're like the gladiators who've, uh, who've come in for this. Uh, we're condemned to death. We are engaged in this mortal combat. And we assemble before the great crowd. have been there before there in the Roman Colosseum. And uh, they stop at the emperor and they say, Morituri te salutamos. We who are about to die salute you. And friends, one of the things that we don't have so much here, I was reading this week uh, from uh, the Archbishop Ben Kwashi. He's a bishop in Nigeria. And he was talking about how do you prepare your preachers to preach in Nigeria? Well, we, we teach them how to exegete the text and, and, and make things practical and, and get a good, clear outline together. He said, but our preachers in Nigeria know today, this is not something long off in the Roman Colosseum, our preachers in Nigeria know today that they may get killed for preaching the gospel. Because in northern Nigeria, the Muslim extremists keep killing off our preachers. But God keeps calling new preachers. Sometimes I don't understand it, but these young Christians are so courageous and committed. Can I share with you a couple of my favorite uh, people and quotes? Hudson Taylor started China Inland Mission back in the 1800s. Listen to what he said. and These are the giants in the faith for us. In these days of easygoing Christianity... Is it not well to remind ourselves that it really does cost to be a man that God can use? One cannot obtain a Christ-like character for nothing. One cannot do a Christ-like work except at a great price. I hear that and I sort of, if you're like me, I sort of shrink back. Okay, Lord, what, what is, what's the cost going to be for me? Because I... Most of the time, my feet are whole. This is from Amy Carmichael. Boy, this is so convicting for me. Toward Jerusalem, we do serve a Messiah that went to Jerusalem to die. From prayer that asks that I might be, sheltered from winds that beat on thee. From fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher. From silken self... O captive free, thy soldier who would follow thee. From subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, not thus are spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified. From all that dims thy calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me, not my brothers here with me, yeah, but give me, give me the love that leads the way the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, O flame of God. Friends, when the gospel begins to steep in your heart, it changes how you view the difficult things that come into your life. You're willing to count the cost. People can think me crazy. Uh, I am going to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And whatever it takes, though he slay me, 
Like Job said, yet will I trust him. Lastly, the gospel changes, transforms proud people into humble servants by changing how we work out problems in personal relationships. Well, there's, there's uh, quite a bit to say here, but I just want to highlight a few things in this last paragraph. Um, the Apostle Paul could have easily written these people off, couldn't he have? Uh, if you go read 2 Corinthians chapter 10 through 13, you begin to see, man, this guy, he, he was criticized. He, uh, he, he was just hammered. He had every reason to give up on these people. He's their spiritual father. He came and preached the gospel to them. They were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dearly loved son through Paul. And they vilified him. They're opposing him. They're speaking ill of him. They're slandering him. And what does he do? Boy, this is such an incredible example for us. How easy it is to do the Heisman stiff arm on people that cross us, that slander us, that, that betray us. Paul pursues. He pursues in love. He says, I admonish, I'm warning you and admonishing you like a father would a son. You see this in in verse 14. To admonish you as my beloved children, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Some of you are arrogant. You think I'm just sending Timothy because I don't want to come. Uh, you're arrogant because you, you, you think I'm, I'm a coward. But I'm your father. And I want you to adopt my ways. I want you to set aside all this, your puffed up piety. And I want you to humble yourself and get your eyes fixed on the one captain, on the one master of the household. And you're, you're a member of that household. But notice also that he's... he's He's not a coward. He's willing to deal truthfully and honestly, and he's willing to get in there and to speak the truth in love. And he, he's willing to confront. And he's willing to wound in order to heal. And he says, you've got a choice. He, he preserves their liberty. I can come with a rod, or I can come with love and a spirit of gentleness. It's your choice. And friends, I just want to uh, just encourage you. Here's the question for you today. Out of all the stuff that we've talked about, here's the one question. Where is unhumbled pride in your life causing dissensions and divisions in your marriage, in your family? in your church family, in your work. Where is it? Where is it? And based upon our study today, what is it that the Lord would have you to do about it? Can I give you one key skill that I found very helpful to kill pride in my life and to cultivate humility? In your work today... If you're a leader, a manager, you know, sometimes what we do is we walk around and find somebody doing something wrong and bam, put the, put the hammer down on them. You know, uh, uh, follow a little bit of Kenneth Blanchard in the One Minute Manager. Hey, find somebody doing something right and praise the heck out of them. Identify, if you're married today, identify evidences of God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of your spouse. If you have a child, if you have a boy like I've had it with three older sisters and his threat, so you want me to hit you? And he hits his sister and he's repentant and he comes and asks forgiveness. If you're a parent, you do a dance and a jig. There's a God in heaven who's calls this boy to repent. Identify the evidences of God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of your son and thank him. Tell him about it. It's a beautiful skill. When it begins to work in a church, when it begins to work in a family, when it begins to work in a marriage, 
humility pervades and there's a joyfulness, a thankfulness, a contentment that begins to pervade all relationships. I've given you something that I want you to take home with you. I don't know if, uh, if, if you've yelped at all when I've been, I've been throwing my rocks. <laughs> I don't know if any, any, any rock has hit you. But one of the best times, uh, I've got a little sheet there on the table that's attached to the outline called the traits of the self-life. In fact, you could take it and uh, there's, there's two pathways that 1 Corinthians 14 has for us. The, the self-life, the self-centered life, the cross-centered life. The next time you come for communion, stick this thing in your Bible. And when it comes time to confess your sins before you come to the Lord's table, I would urge you to take out this sheet, the traits of the self-life. It's been a very helpful spiritual exercise for me. And it's led me back again and again to see communion as a cheering ordinance. Yes, he died for my sin. But because of the Father's love, Jesus was there for me, and it cheers you. It invigorates you. It gives you hope. And uh, I would encourage you to take that home and use that as a tool in your own devotional life. Let me pray for us that the Lord would come upon us and the power of His kingdom rule and reign would transform us into humble servants. Let's pray. Father, pride is the native air that we breathe. We see it so frequently in others and, and are so oblivious to it in ourselves. Would you break this tendency to be puffed up and think so well of ourselves and humble us and remind us how forgiven we are, how loved we are, how accepted we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we today live for the approval of the audience of one and let us gladly count the cost, whatever they may be, to follow you and to hear on that last day, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Lord, would you encourage these men today? And would their lives be marked more and more by the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who humbled himself and became obedient servant, even unto death, death on a cross. Unveil his beauties to our sight so that we might love you and we might walk in your ways. We commit ourselves to you this day for your strength and your Holy Spirit and your reign in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.